Good morning. It's good to see you guys. It is so good to start our week in worship. It's Sundays like this that you can always look around and tell who the real committed saints are. Because you got up this morning and you couldn't take your car to church. You had to find your boat, canoe your way into church. And we're just so grateful that you braved this weather to get here. Uh, if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn with me in that Bible to Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to give you just a minute to turn there. If you're borrowing one of our Bibles, one of those blue Bibles that should have been given to you on the way in, it's page 200. Joshua chapter 4. As you turn there, we are in a series to start this year, actually wrapping it up this week, a series that we've called Experience Immeasurably More, where week after week we have extended God's invitation to you, to me, to experience more, more of his presence and more of his power in our life. Because our goal is that everyone who calls Eastside home and those that God is drawing to himself through his church would experience God for themselves this year. And I really want to implore you, hold on to that phrase that our goal is that everyone who touches Eastside Christian Church this year would experience God for themselves. Um, If you're joining us for the first time, if you're one of our guests this morning, we are so grateful that you are here. And uh, the way we think that we experience more of God is not some secret formula that only we found. It's not this proprietary plan that we put together. The way that we experience more of God as a church here on the east side of Orlando is a series of six simple steps that we take straight from Scripture. And we just repeat them over and over and over again in our life as we have a front row seat to watch God work. We call those six simple steps our core values, that we experience more of God when we lean in, when we take action, when we expect miracles, when we live open-handed lives, when we cultivate a restorative community, and when we reflect all Glory to God. And we put these six values in a particular order on purpose because they build one on top of another as we put ourselves in position to experience God at work in our life. And that's key. Like, I want to make a promise to you that if you follow God with these six steps, you'll experience more of God. Now, there's nothing I can do to make you experience more of God. There's nothing the person sitting next to you can do. But if we will follow these six simple steps, we believe that we will put ourselves in position to experience more of God. So if you're just trying to lean in and figure this out, the first step is quite simple. Just lean in. Spend time with God. Sit with him in his words. Spend time in prayer to start your day every day and see if God doesn't speak to you through his word. The next step, the next step is take action. Just when he speaks, do what he says. Live a life of obedience. We, uh, obedience is up to us and God honors obedience. And then we expect miracles. We go through life looking for God to work. It doesn't mean we're going to see a burning bush moment every single Monday. But if we are faithfully hearing God's voice and following him, he is at work through our church. Then we live open-handed lives. We are generous with our time, our talent, our treasures. We recognize that our life is no longer our own because we were bought at a price. And we actually get more out of life when we live our life for God. We cultivate restorative community. We don't treat community or people like a commodity, but we cling to our community. We invite people in to know us, to spur us on towards love and good works, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. And today, our final core value is reflect all the glory to God. When we lean in and take action and watch God work as we live open-handed lives and cultivate restorative community, when God goes to work in our life, the overflow of our life brings God glory, which simply means it makes much of God. 
so that when people look to our life and see God at work in our life, they give God the credit. Man, I don't know about a more convincing story than this story in Joshua chapter 4. So it's a little bit of a longer story. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles, Joshua chapter 4. As you turn there, I want to remind you, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we started here a few weeks ago in this series. We're picking up the story, the beginning of the book of Joshua. It's in the Old Testament. The people of God are coming out of a season of wandering in the wilderness where they spent 40 years kind of bouncing from place to place. And now they are on the edge of the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that's symbolically described as a land flowing with milk and honey where God's presence will be with God's people, where his provision will be made plentiful for them. And they have to decide, are they going to set out and step into the promises of God? Are they going to play it safe and stay on the sidelines and spend the rest of their life looking at what God could have done had they walked closely with him? And so they hear his voice. They lean in and they hear God say, very simply, step into the Jordan River, this massive, swift-flowing Jordan River at the time that was at flood stage. And they hear the God's instruction. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but they take action. They step into the, the water and they watch God part the Jordan River. And the people of God walk through on dry ground. We pick up the story in Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. It says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man. Now, the people of God in those days were divided into 12 tribes. And so God says to Joshua, after all the people passed through, take one man from each tribe, 12 in total, verse 3, and command them, saying, take 12 stones, so one stone per man, from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. I've circled that in my Bible, come back to it, from the very place, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. When Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off so that these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Let's stop right there for just a moment. That's a lot to take in. So the people of God are on the edge of the Jordan River. They step into the water as God instructs. And God parts the Jordan River through them. And this entire nation of people, the people of God, start walking through the Jordan River on dry ground because God has performed an incredible miracle in their midst. And as they're going through, Joshua says to 12 men, hey, I want you to go back to the place where the ark of God was that represented the presence of God among his people. And I want you to pick up 12 stones. Each of you take up a large stone from the Jordan River and carry it out with you so that it'll be a sign to you for this generation and generations to come that the Lord worked in your midst in incredible ways. Which is interesting. But I also think it's interesting that as the people of God pass through the Jordan River, as they're walking through the miracle and experiencing God at work for themselves, Joshua has to send some 12 men back to pick up stones. It's like the last thing that's on their mind is how they will let others see God at work through their story. 
He says, go back and pick up the stones. And it's convicting to me because I think it's more common than we would like to admit that our instinct as we watch God work is to think about what God can do for us. What can God do for me before we ever think about what God is doing through us? And if your first thought as you watch God at work in your life isn't, how can I reflect glory to God? You're in really good company because you already sighed. No, no, not because no, it's just it's the instinct of people for all time. In fact, I love to learn from the foolishness and the fumbles of Jesus' closest friends and followers, specifically that of the 12 disciples. Except for sometimes as I read their story and I laugh at how silly they were and how much they missed, I recognize that I do the very same thing. But after Jesus three years spent with his disciples, where they traveled with him from place to place, and they listened to him teach, and they watched him perform miracles, and they understood the plan of God's salvation that was being rolled out through Jesus for all mankind. After they watched him being nailed to a cross, after they heard that his body was thrown into a tomb and a stone rolled in front of it, and after they rolled that stone away, and Jesus, after the angels rolled the stone away, and Jesus was raised victoriously, he spent 40 more days with them, teaching them, reminding them, performing miracles. After 40 more days, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we see this. The disciples gather with Jesus. He's about to ascend to the Father's right hand where he waits to come back for his church. And they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you are reading this story for the first time or the first time in a while, just kind of read through it. We read right past that. But that's a pretty selfish question that the disciples are asking. After all that Jesus has done to work out this plan for salvation for all mankind, they still can't get their minds above the physical realm in which they live and what God could do for them. Because the truth is, they'd spent so much time with Jesus and built so much trust with him because of his grace that they thought if God establishes a kingdom through Jesus here, if he restores the nation of Israel and Jesus sits on the throne, we're going to have a spot at his right hand and his left hand. We're going to be installed as cabinet members in this kingdom that Jesus is setting up. We'll be the ones with a corner office. We'll be ministers administering the kingdom. And so they say, after all that Jesus has performed, after all of his sacrifice and all of uh, the power demonstrated through the resurrection, are you going to set up shop here in Israel now? And Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. He doesn't even entertain the real question. He says, but you, because God is kind to clearly communicate our calling and our purpose. He says, but you, my friends, my disciples, those who have heard me teach and watched me perform miracles, those who are the first to receive this message of salvation, you're going to receive power, explosive power when the Holy Spirit of God has come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses the word is the same word as martyrs. You're going to give your life to tell people about what you've seen me do in your midst here in Jerusalem and then all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're asking Jesus a pretty simple question. Hey, what's in it for me? Is this when this is all worth it? And he says, it's not really about what God can do for you. Though God's going to do incredible things for you. He's going to do even more incredible things through you. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit of God in your, to dwell inside of you, to, to give you power to preach the gospel that you have seen with your own eyes. 
So we weren't created to be consumers, but contributors to tell people firsthand how we've experienced God at work in our life. What have we witnessed God do? From the very start, we were created to reflect glory to God. We've referenced this throughout this study, but God created us in his image, in his likeness, to reflect his glory. It's not just a physical reflection, but the work of God overflowing from us. The truth is we experience immeasurably more when we experience God at work through us. So Joshua sends 12 men back, and he says, go back to the very place where you experience the power of God and the presence of God, the dry ground that was once or just moments ago, uh, a raging river. Pick up the stones there as evidence that you experienced God at work in your midst. The story goes on in verse 8. It says, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. They took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they were lodged, and they laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Verse 10. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. Verse 11. And when all the people had finished passing over the Ark of the Lord, and the priests passed over before the people. That verse 10 doesn't really fit in the sermon that I had planned to preach today, but it stood out to me every time I stopped to spend time with God in his, in his word this week. It says, For the priests bearing the ark of God, which represented the presence of God among the people of God, stood in the midst of the Jordan River. They stood there in the middle of the Jordan as God held the waters back until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Because the people passed over in haste. I think it's so fascinating when we look at Scripture and we see the difference between God and God's people. The people are in a hurry to get through the Jordan River. They're not doing anything wrong, but they're moving from one place to the next in haste while God stands still. He remains steady. And I think there's something powerful about the fact that God stayed put while the people were moving from place to place in a hurry. God stayed steady. And like I said, it's not really the point of this sermon, but sometimes we just have to stop and stand in awe of God when he makes himself known to us through his word. And we recognize that every single word was written for a reason. And honestly, I think this is one of the reasons or the things that have caused me to stop and stand in awe of God for some time now. It's that God is steadfast in his commitment to his people. Now, we take that for granted. Like, we can read this miracle from start to finish. We know how the story ends by the time we start the story. But the people of God were passing through a turbulent river that could wash people away. And God stays put in the middle of it until the entire thing is carried out. Can you imagine if God were as inconsistent as we are? Because we are all over the place, aren't we? We're all in in one moment. We're all out in the next moment. We're completely sold out for God in one moment. Take my life, do whatever you want. And then we're completely selfish in the next moment, sacrificing the purpose of God on our life. But God's goodness and grace, his commitment to his people is not dependent on our ability to hold on to God because it's God who holds on to us. 
This familiar scripture from Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21 through 24 is always at the forefront of my mind. Where the writer says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. First of all, there's something powerful in there. What is on the front of your mind as you go through life's circumstances and life's challenges? Is it the enormity of the wall of water being held back or is it the God who is holding them back? Lamentation says, but this is what I call to mind and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Because we are inconsistent. Our friends are inconsistent. Our family who loves us, they're inconsistent. Our church can be inconsistent because we're full of people. And we'll do our best and we'll serve you as well as we can. But we are by very nature inconsistent when God is steadfast in his commitment to his people. He always comes through and he always sees it through to completion. The people here in this story, they're passing through the Jordan If God were to let go, they would be swept away by the swift current of their current circumstances. But God does not let that happen. He is stable. He is steady. He stays put. He is steadfast. Some of you might be going through a season of life right now that there's more questions than answers. If you look to your left, you see a wall of water. If you look to your right, you see a wall of water. And maybe it's a diagnosis or confusion on your calling or a family struggle or financial issues or relationship problems. The list goes on and on. God called you. And he is a God who is steadfast in his commitment to his people. The Apostle Paul would write a letter to a church in Philippi, and he would say to them, I'm sure of this, or I'm confident of the fact that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I have no doubt, despite our current circumstances, that God will bring to completion that which he has called you to. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. If you're walking in obedience to God, hearing his voice, following him, watching him work, living open-handed lives, sold out for God in a restorative community, God will always come through. Here's the thing, the world doesn't understand that. We live in a world that moves from place to place, from one thing to the next. It's literally what's celebrated in our culture, climbing the corporate ladder to try to get ahead. But what happens if we, like God, would stay put where God has called us? And I'm not saying we can never move. I'm just saying that if God is calling you, he's going to see something through to completion, cling to him for the season that you're in. We want to see it through because God sees it through. We don't stop long enough. The question is, do we stop long enough to even hear what God says? Here's, here's my concern. In our consumerism-based culture, if we aren't careful, we come to church to get what we can get, and we hurry on to the next thing, even the next church. You know, I met Jesus at this church. I'm trying to grow here to be grown, and this church to sing. But God's presence and his power is on display among his people. Friends, this is holy ground. And I invite you to hang out and watch God work. Eugene Peterson wrote a book that has a really great title. I've yet to read it because the title is profound enough. He says, it's long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction that when we do the same thing or when we walk with God one step at a time every day for the long run, God will blow our mind. God stayed put. Verse 19, we're going to skip ahead of verse 19. It says, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. 
I like verses like this because it reminds me that these were real people in a real place experiencing a real demonstration of God pouring out his very real power. I, I was talking on the way in with a friend today. I said, I grew up in church. I love the Lord, but sometimes I have this tendency to look back at these familiar stories. I remember them as pictures on a felt board, and they can almost seem like a mythological moment where we take for granted what God has done. But God gives us dates and details because he wants to know that this is real. He says, the people came up out of the Jordan River. That's the place. On the 10th day of the first month, they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. It's interesting to think back to the particular time and place where we experience the power of God on display. There's something significant to that. We're going to see that the people set up memorials along the way to remember God's goodness. But the people of Israel are going to go on to accomplish incredible things as they follow God into the promised land. They're going to face very real obstacles. And sometimes I think it's important to look back at what God has done, the places he has demonstrated his power. I was making some notes as things that God has done. I can tell you the place. I can tell you the place where I was sitting in the woods when God said it was time to start a church several years ago. I can tell you the dining room table where we were sitting when my wife reminded me what we heard God say more clearly then I was confident she reiterated what God had said. I can remember the place where I was when I heard the prompting of God to invite my friend Dale to church, and when I can remember the, the text that he sent in response before he joined or when he accepted the invitation. I can tell you where Nick and I sat and met for the first time since we graduated college some five or six years before, and I shared with him our vision to plant a church in Orlando. I can tell you where we stood in the lobby of an old Presbyterian church where we met for some time after COVID when Reagan decided to give her life to Jesus and get baptized. I can tell you the place and the people that God has demonstrated his power. It is encouraging to make note of the things that God has done, lest we take for granted that these are real people experiencing real power, that God is at work in a powerful way in this place, and their evidence is all around us in the lives of the people who call Eastside home. Verse 20 says this. It says, In those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but I want you to think about this. When we experience God for ourselves, there's evidence in our life, and others will inevitably ask about it. Now, from the outside looking in, it might look relatively unimpressive. I imagine the vast landscape, 12 stones set up one on top of another, would be obvious that someone had put them there on purpose, but that purpose would not be clear. It might look like a pile of rocks, but this is the place where the people of God experience the power of God in their life because God has done amazing things. Verse 23 and 24 communicate to us what it looks like to reflect glory to God. So Joshua's given this instruction. And he says, I want you to take these 12 stones from the very place where you experience the power of God at work in your midst. I want you to carry them up out of the Jordan River. It's going to be hard work, but it's going to be worth it because we're going to build a monument there with these 12 stones. And someday your children, your grandchildren, your children's children's children, they're going to look back and ask what these stones mean. Someday, a few thousand years later, the church is going to be gathered remembering this story because God worked in such a powerful way. And then he reminds them what God has done. In verse 23, hear what the Lord, hear Joshua says to the people through the power of the Lord. For the Lord... Your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you. I circled that in my Bible. The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. 
as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And so he's saying, God has done some really incredible things for you and some really incredible things for us, his people. But verse 24 says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Leave those verses on the screen for us if you would. He says, God has done this for you. And I want you to think about it. God has done some incredible things for you. God led the people of God in the Old Testament through the Jordan River so that they could step into the promises that God had prepared for them. But the purpose, so that the earth, the world, would know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that God is capable, that he is powerful, that he is working for his people, that you may fear the Lord forever. God performed this incredible miracle for his people so that the world might know that he is powerful and that the world would stand in all of him and that they would follow him forever, living with this reverent fear, hearing his voice, doing what he says because he's a good and gracious God who has worked in our past and will work in our future. God has done this for you so that the world will see the mighty hand of God. And we read this story, we think like, wow, like what would it have been like to have been there and experienced a work of God like this? Walking through the river on dry ground, like that would be incredible. I really do think that would be one of the most incredible miracles. I've seen someone raised from dead to life. I mean, they're just got their eyes closed, they got their eyes open. I appreciate the miracle, but like the wall of water, I think would cause me to stand in awe of God. It'd be so cool to see what it would be like to walk on dusty soil that was once saturated with a stream flowing by. But the truth is, God has done immeasurably more in you and in me than he ever did for them. That what God accomplished for the people of Israel in that moment pales in comparison to all he's accomplished for you and me when we put our faith in Jesus. If you would, flip over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read this text to you because, man, it's powerful. So he said, we're going to take these stones out so that the world will see that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you, the people of God, would fear the Lord forever. And that fear of God is really to stand in awe of God, to know that he is good and gracious and will do what he says because it's good for us. A couple thousand years later, the Apostle Paul writes the letters to the church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he says to believers, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to you. And so Paul references that fear that God has wanted for his people, that we would stand in awe of God, remembering the way that he has worked for our good and his glory. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We'll skip down to verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, who for their sake died and was raised. And so he says the love of Christ is taking control. Remember, we said like we live open-handed lives, that our life is not our own. We were bought at a price because we've concluded this. We're confident in the fact that Jesus died for all so that no one has to die, that there's good news here. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard them thus no longer. We're not just looking to what we see, but to what God has done in us. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, if anyone has put their faith in Jesus, in Paul's day, in our day, and every day in between, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Some of us just need to hear that good news, don't we? That we are not who we once were before Jesus. But we are a new creation in Jesus. That God doesn't see us for our past or our failures or our lack of faith. If you're anything like me, you have this this tendency to hear series like this study and be reminded, man, I knew these things. I should have been doing these things. But today's the day that we step into the promises of God and experience more of him for ourselves by doing what he says. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God was drawing this broken world close to him. The way he was doing that was not counting their trespasses against them, not because they forgot, but because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Let's stop there for a second. Can you believe that Jesus entrusted to us the message that he died for? Like, think about it. Like, some of us wouldn't trust our car keys with the person sitting next to us. Jesus lived and died for this message. And if they were going to get out to the world, he gave it to his church. The message that Jesus died so that we could be reconciled to God. And our minds go back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship with God because there was no sin between them and their perfect creator. He says, He's reconciled us to God, and he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And then Paul starts to get pretty uh, assertive. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who had no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul took this message seriously. Friends, we have been entrusted with the the message of reconciliation to God, that we don't have to live another day alienated from God by our sin because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin and made us the righteousness of God. It's a beautiful picture of what we call imputed righteousness, that Jesus takes his righteousness and gives it to us so that when God looks down on those who put their faith in Jesus, he doesn't see all of our sins, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, so that we could be restored to right standing with him. He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So our job is to tell people about Jesus. Now, I want to be honest with you. Maybe this is something you don't expect to hear from someone who is preaching at a church, but I grew up in church, like many of you, with people and a church and preachers telling me that I need to tell people about Jesus. You guys ever hear that from the preacher? Hey, you should tell people about Jesus. And like, I believed him, but I didn't do it. Like, I didn't know why I would. Like, I I put my faith in Jesus, and I had been baptized, and I was trying to walk with Jesus and reading my Bible a few times a week and really grateful for the gift of salvation that God had given me. But, but it wasn't until I experienced his power at work in my life for myself that I stopped listening to the enemy try to convince me that my story wasn't worth sharing. Because I grew up in one of those families that I'm so grateful for in church, I'm grateful for, that my story 
would make a really boring movie. You know, you know, like I gave to my life to Jesus when I was nine because my uncle was a preacher. And it's just like, I certainly sinned, and I knew that I'd sinned before my putting my faith in Jesus. I knew that God was forgiving me of my sins through Jesus, but my sins were like lying to my parents, which, compared to holy God, is a big deal. But I hadn't murdered anybody, you know? Like, I hear these stories at church planning conferences that I go to, and the, the person on the video screen was like born in prison. And you're like, how is that even possible? And he was so successful in prison that he, like, raised a gang of other prisoners and, you know, killed people. It's just like, and then he gave his life to Jesus because someone showed up in prison and, like, he's now planting churches all around the world. It's like, that's just not my story. Like, I was to, like, vacation Bible school and Sunday school and Bible Bowl and somehow still found Jesus. But my point is, like, my story just doesn't seem that impressive. And the enemy has often tried to convince me that it's not worth sharing because it's lacks some of the drama and flair that I hear from others. But the truth is, every story of salvation is a story worth sharing. Because every salvation story is a story of God's provision for his people through Jesus. And the miracle that is performed in our hearts, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, is immeasurably more than anything the people of Israel could have imagined as they walked through the Jordan River on dry ground. The New Testament is constantly saying the people of the, Old, of the Old Testament, they experience incredible things, but they long to see what we now look back on. They long to see the work of Jesus. And so I do. I tell people my story. I grew up in a great family. I grew up in the kind of family that I'm trying to raise my kids in. And I gave my life to Jesus at a very young age. And I walked with Jesus kind of fumbling my way towards him, free from the egregious sins that make a fantastic story, but certainly stumbling and sinning along the way. And God was gracious enough to use me as part of his story. And I experienced God when I recognized for the first time that God has done for me immeasurably more than I could have ever accomplished on my own so that others might see him at work. This story is going to sound so familiar because, again, it's the only story I got. But my wife and I, we grew up, we met in Bible college, right? We met in Bible college. We grew up in different churches that probably looked the same, though they were far apart. We believed every word the preacher ever said, but I never really experienced God at work in my life for myself. And so a few years later, when I was 28, 29 years old, through a season of prayer and fasting, praying that God would provide for us a family, I heard a call to plant a church family. We started with a small group of people who committed to starting a church on the east side of Orlando to see God transform the spiritual landscape of the city that we love, that as the city was expanding and growing, God's footprint in the city was shrinking. So we launched and grew every week for the first nine weeks in this year called 2020 until COVID shut us down in person. Try to take a nine-week-old church online. Like, we, we were still, like nursing, and we were trying to go online. There was no core to take online, and so God was faithful. The church continued to meet uh, many of us in community groups until we could find a place to launch in a Presbyterian church that graciously opened their doors for us for a few months. God carried our church through. We were in four locations in our first year. I like to tell my story that our tagline is leading others to experience immeasurably more, but in those years, it was if you can find us, you can worship with us because we didn't know where we would worship from week to week. We absorbed some losses along the way and stood firm against the attacks of the enemy. God has always been at work to draw people to himself through his church. The stories that caused me to stop and stand in awe of God are your stories. The stories of you finding Jesus for the very first time, putting your faith in him. Every baptism is a monumental moment in itself, a real-life miracle taking place among the people of God. 
It's the people coming back to God for the first time or the first time in a long time. It's God bringing a sense of purpose and significance to the people uh, doing ministry who had once counted ministry uh, long gone. People being discipled and deciding to make disciples with their life instead of clinging to their life. It's the people who recognize the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit has brought in their life, waging war with sin and winning that war through the power of his Holy Spirit so that their war and victory becomes a testimony. It's the story of people putting up signs and setting up pipe and drape and setting up chairs and giving generously, starting community groups, getting into community groups, reading the Bible, hearing what God is saying, taking action, watching him work, because our story is a story that only God can get glory for. We prayed a very simple, humble prayer when we launched Eastside that I've prayed every day since. God, use us to build a church that only you can take credit for. So that when people look at us, they won't stand in all of us, but they'll stand in all of the God who has called us. I don't say any of this to boast about us, but to make much of God because God is at work to accomplish immeasurably more. We started this series in Ephesians chapter 3. I want to end in the same place. The right, Paul writes this to the church. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. The translation I grew up with, now him is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or think according to that power at work within us. The power that held back the Red Sea and held back the waters of the Jordan, who caused the walls of Jericho to fall down, established a kingdom and brought from that kingdom a savior so that we could put our faith in him. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is at work within his church. I've never, I was speaking with my management team this week, I said I've never been more confident in who God has called us to be. That we exist to lead others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange that which is common for that which is holy. Which is a really profound and ornate way to say, ornate way to say we're not going to choose to go the way of the world, but the way that God is calling us because God has interrupted our story through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And if we were to hone down on that even more, our purpose this year is to lead people to experience God for themselves. I love that people are coming every week for the first time to experience what we're doing here at Eastside, but my prayer is that they would experience us making much of God. And then as we go from here, we would tell people the same story we say every day that God saved me, whatever your story is. God saved me from whatever sinful life I was choosing to live and he is making much of my life through Jesus Christ. And I'm doing life following Jesus, hearing his voice, taking action, watching him work among a close group of friends on the east side of Orlando who have been called to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando to him be glory. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, today can be the day that this story changes. This can be your moment. You can give your life to him. You can be baptized. You can start your walk with Jesus today. If you're walking with Jesus, I would invite you to stay close to these friends here gathered on the east side of, on the first day of the week on the east side of Orlando because God is at work in our midst to accomplish immeasurably more. There's bigger churches, there's brighter churches, there's churches I meet at other times, but this is a special church because God is writing our story through your story. And then I would encourage you as we reflect glory to God, take this story with you wherever God has placed you, whether it's at home with your kids, 
the place that you're living, your apartment, your neighborhood, the place of employment, your school, wherever. Publix checkout line, Starbucks, and tell people God is at work leading others to experience him for themselves through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to look back through a few thousand years of history and see the stories that you've saved for us, your church, so that we might stand in all of you. Father, we're thankful for those who went before us. We're thankful for the people of Israel who faithfully followed you through that Jordan River. We're thankful for the people who set up homes in the promised land and built a nation, allowed you to build a nation so that you could bring Jesus into this world. Father, we're thankful for the, the people who followed faithfully after Jesus so that when he lived and died and he rose again, they would carry that story with them into the world so that we might recognize what God has done for us so that the whole world might know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, mighty to save, and that we might live in a holy, reverent fear of the God who is good and gracious and always at work for our good and his glory. We're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.